Welcome to Disruption Now. I'm Rob Richardson. And I'm James Keyes. It's an honor to have Samara Rivers. Samara Rivers is the founder and CEO of the Black Bourbon Society. This was started in, in order to connect more African-Americans to the industry, to whiskey, to bourbon, because you know what? Lots of African-Americans drink bourbon, but you wouldn't know that because uh, you wouldn't know that through the marketing because most of the time marketing doesn't pay attention to African-Americans. She saw that need and her love of bourbon and, and need to connect people got her involved in this process. And now she has a group on Facebook that's over 7,000 large. Uh, she has her own podcast that she is in partnership with her partner in life. It's called Bonded in Bourbon. I got to hear how that story happened. And uh, we're going we're gonna to get a chance to learn her experience, learn her journey. And most of all, we get to learn a lot about bourbon. So if you like bourbon and you want to hear more about bourbon, stick around and listen to the rest of the podcast. Well, good to see you, Samara. Appreciate having you on the show. It's an honor. Yay! Yeah. So I was saying you had to get your, you said you'd get your AKA look going on. I understand. I'm a Kappa, so. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> opportunity to be branded, so I put on my BBA. Oh, no, that's awesome. I love that. Black Bourbon Society, right? That's what that, the V, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. There you go. She gonna. She needs any more trademarks. She needs to talk to you, James. James, he's a trademark. He's a, tra <laughs> he's a trademark go. and patent attorney. Uh, we are. Um, I wish I would have known that. We finally are in the Gazette. So like oh, okay. we're in our last stages of being trademarked. Yeah, it sounds like publication. So that's good. Yeah, but I started it last August and like didn't know what I was doing. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, like the person who was reviewing my case just finally called me and told me what to do. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. That's, that's good. good. You know, sometimes we you have to find your way through it. And it's the only it's the only thing you can do. It's a good place to start. You, you, I read in an interview that you said when you first started doing this, the, the, the black you're the CEO of the, the Black Bourbon Society. And when you first started your business venture here, you really had no idea you were like walking in the dark. And I think a lot of people get paralyzed and never really take that first step because they can just go through all of the the mental, I got to do this, I got to know that, I got to do this. I mean, how did you just go out there and just take that leap of faith? And what and what do you advise others to do just to get out there and do it? Um, You know, it's just, you're not going to have all the answers. And I think sometimes we often over-prepare ourselves thinking we have to know all of the answers. We have to have this well-written plan already done, but um, it actually stifles our growth. It's, it's just get out there and start doing something, you know, just even if you're, you're crawling at a snail's pace, you just have to keep moving because that idea can get lost in the, the big picture of all of the details of what you want to do. You know, so like when I started Black Bourbon Society, no, I didn't even, I had just started drinking whiskey. I was like two years in just on my own personal whiskey journey. Right. I wasn't a collector. I, you know, didn't have any sales or background experience in the industry. I came to it fresh. I just had an idea and I was passionate about it. And I wanted to tell as many people about my passion as possible. And I learned as I grew the business. Um, and in a way, especially as I grew the following for Black Bourbon Society, um, my members taught me about whiskey and they were way more advanced. Um, but they also appreciated that about me because I didn't come to them as a know-it-all. I didn't come to them as this expert. So they really felt like they connected with me on a personal level and they've been supporters ever since, you know. So you, you, when you talked about, it was another interview, you talked about some of the challenges you had. Uh, I think this this one interview I was uh, referencing, it, 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 it was focused towards women. Mm -hmm. The question you were asked, I could be paraphrasing, but it, it was along these lines. Uh, 
they asked you what challenges did you have being a woman and what I believe you said, it wasn't being a woman that was that was the biggest challenge. It was being a person of color that yeah. was the biggest challenge. Talk more about that and what that's well, been like. You know, in this industry, it's, it's whiskey, right? So yeah. <laughs> you know, whiskey primarily comes out of 51% or around that number of amount of whiskey comes out of the state of Kentucky. Um, so just think about the demographics of Kentucky and you can already yeah. tell. It's right down the street from me. I can, I can throw a rock to Kentucky. I know it well. <laughs> exactly. So this is very much still the, dem- the highest demographic for bourbon consumers and, and the whiskey industry is middle-aged white men. And the, the bourbon producers are old white men and they've been producing this in their families for generations. Some of them, the newer ones are, are still white, but they're popping up on the scene. Um, and so, yeah, they've never seen somebody who looks like me interested in their product. And so bold and so like determined and eager and passionate about this. So it does, it's, it's, it's interesting. They've all been welcoming to me, but there's nobody else who looks like me in the room, you know, right. which presents opportunities and obviously challenges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, 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 so what specific challenge you get, let's dig a little more into that. So can you think of, you don't have to say the exact person, but think of a story or someone you encountered. This was like, like, okay, this, you were a little bit taken aback. I mean, there had to be something in, I mean, I'm making an assumption here, but for you to say that, some some stories are are there. Um, You know, it's interesting. Again, it's not that I haven't encountered like racism or being excluded. It's just that for me, let me just back up. I went to a HBCU. Like I'm from black LA, like I'm from LA, but I'm from like the black part of LA. So for me, all of my friends, my world is actually black. Um, This is the first time in my life that I've actually had white friends, you know, and it was stepping out of my comfort zone for that. And again, um, I came to the industry very honest and very open. And I feel like the industry met me with that. We didn't really have a lot of pushback as to like, no, we don't want to work with you because you don't look like us. Right. It's just still that isolating feeling. I know that we all feel it as African-Americans of what it feels like to be the only in the room. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. you wish you had a buddy to look over and kind of give that look and they knew exactly what that look meant. Yep, I know the look. <laughs> <laughs> we all, all three of us know that look. You know what I mean? It's like, the wink and the nod, like, yeah, you know what they're the talking about. And, you know, you wish you could walk down the hallway and kind of give the nod, like, yes, I see you. And, they, <laughs> you know, and that just doesn't exist in this world. So um, it was challenging on both parts for the industry, for, you know, I guess they, they welcomed me. They were open to my ideas, but also for myself, it tested who I was. Right. Um, and, you know, at going back to the role of a woman and what it's like to to break barriers and to um, and to do things that there's no blueprint before. It's you know you can easily get imit- intimidated you know by being bold and aggressive and being the first to do something. Um, but as an entrepreneur and as someone who is always the first, you have to have this right. inner confidence to just do it anyway. You can't be scared, you no. know. Um, I, I wonder if your experience from going to a black college had had had, had any part in that. I want to have let James come in because you guys both have that in common. He he's also he went to Howard. I don't know where you where you went. I was a fam. I went oh, to Howard. Okay, so. okay. Fam, nice, nice. I was a <laughs> <laughs> the mecca. But no, I, I had a lot of love for fam. That's good. Well, I, I imagine that you know, as a ten year old, fifteen year old, even eighteen year old, you don't imagine yourself growing up to be 
you know, the head of the black bourbon society. So, you know, through your journey growing up, you know, like, what did you want to be when you started? And then how did that evolve? Um, you know, I really admire, I, let me say, I really admire what you said initially saying, you, you know, you have an idea, you should go for it, you know, because yeah. that's how you sometimes you succeed, sometimes you fail, but even your failures can lead to other opportunities. So, oh, yeah. you know, the, the starting with, you know, what, what you initially wanted to be, and then your, your evolution to, to where you are now, you know, how, how did, how did that go basically? So I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, when I started FAMU, I did start off in their business program um, in SBI. And um, they, in the brochures, I'll, I'll go back all the way to 98 when I was looking at the brochures, trying to figure out what school I wanted to go to. And I remember them saying, you know, they had this five-year MBA program and they had an um, entrepreneurial track and all of that. Got to FAMU my freshman year. Um, was taking all the business courses and quickly realized that the program was really geared more towards corporate America. Yeah. yeah. And I was honestly, I was disappointed because I knew from a very young age, I never wanted to work for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just because I come from a, a gen, like a lineage of entrepreneurs. Um, my I believe I saw four generations. Yeah, four generations yeah, yeah. Um, on both sides of my family. So, and they were all men, surprisingly. I'm the only woman um, who has started, you know, their, my own business. I guess it, it skipped my brother and it went to me. But- um, You got the gene, it came in, you got it, the bug. I, I got the bug from a very young age. So I always knew like, okay, fine. Like I won't, and I, I dropped out of, to be honest, I, after I realized the program was in corporate, um, was more skewed towards corporate America, I quit. I left the program and I- um, I got a fine arts degree. <laughs> I went from business to art, and which was my true passion at the time. And I saw myself as being a curator, as just being a creative, um, being um, someone who always was into art. I was just like, okay, fine. If I can't get a degree in business, I'm going to get a degree in something that I am passionate about. So I ended up with a, getting um, a fine arts degree and then went over to Florida State and got an art history degree and a master's in arts administration. So I did not know that I would end up in the whiskey business <laughs> <laughs> at all. Um, there have been moments, and like when you look back at the patterns of your life, I remember my freshman year, and even before I went to college, I used to collect, um, you guys remember those absolute, um, absolute vodka? And yep. they used to have the advertising, the really cool advertising, like they had like Absolute California, and it was like the Absolute bottle in the shape of like a pool with palm trees, palm mm-hmm. trees. Yep. They had a whole campaign. Well, I used to collect those ads in magazines, and I actually would line my walls like a wallpaper with all of the advertisements that came out of the the um, absolute marketing wheelhouse. Wow. Like that's how much I was really into visuals and really paying attention to how spirits were being marketed to people. And so that's I kind of had this natural inclination for for marketing for mm-hmm. for art and right. how it impacts people. Um, and so I did that, and I remember my roommate got concerned, and she thought I had an alcohol problem or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't necessarily that I liked Absolute. I never even drank it, but I really loved the artistry that went into the behind the, the, behind the product. I drank um, Absolute, so good for you. <laughs> so, you know, those things that kept happening, and, you know, I, um, I worked in the museums for a little bit, 
Um, I always had my business on the side, which was event planning and, you know, producing events for other people. And so that's how I kind of came into this industry. Like, yes, I like whiskey and I know how to plan events. And, you know, that's how BBS got started. I was, um, I was subcontracting with a brand um, in Oakland who um, their brand rep was new to the area. And um, she didn't know like venues, no restaurants or bars to like kind of um to partner with to do activations for her audience for for her customers and so she subcontracted her work to me to like plan all of her events and i asked her i said okay well um i want to make sure that i'm meeting your target audience like what are your directives and she didn't have time for me she was waiting for like the cable guy to come fix her cable she had moved from new jersey and she was like, oh, I don't have time to deal with this. And she just forwarded me over her marketing deck from her brand. So she gave me proprietary information. And when I saw the deck, wow. I realized that there was no direct consumer marketing targeting African-Americans, especially outside of the urban demographic. That's when I created BBS. Right. So nice. literally, stars just kind of aligned and fell into place. Well, no, but th and there's a real lesson in your journey in the sense that once you realize that the school of business wasn't taking you in, in the direction that you, you were excited about and, you know, that was really for you, right. you didn't just leave, you know, you, you, you found something that did interest you and, and put your energy into that. And, you know, developing those skills of, of, of identifying something you like and then jumping on the opportunity and then sticking with it. it I yeah. see the, a parallel then later on when you're doing something and then an opportunity hits, you're prepared for it um, because right. of the work you had done up until that point. And then you jump on it because, you know, you don't know when the, when the opportunity knocks, but, you know, you're ready to answer. So, you know, that's really nice to hear. And that's something that it's a story. I think that, that a lot of young people, you know, and, and, and people, old people, people of all ages should, you know, remember as they yeah. go through their journey. It's not going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. No journey is perfect and you can't prep for it, but some kind of way you just have to be resilient and you just have to ride with it. Go ahead. I mean, I want to take a little more in that direction. When you think about often when people make these type of leaps, they're, they're, something goes wrong. As you said, they're, you know, things, you have plan A, B, and C, all of a sudden, A, B, and C is off the table. Things, you, payroll doesn't come in. Something happens. But think about a time you failed in your life because I, I failed a lot. I, I'll give you some if, yeah. if, you, if you'd like to hear some of my failures and how, that, and how that helped you learn to become a better business person, a better person. I think, you know, I think those, those are the type of examples I like to hear because people need to know that, yes, sometimes the process is fun. Most of the time, it's a it's not linear. It's a hard process and you have setbacks, you have obstacles that you didn't foresee. And I believe people need to know that when they're going through these things, like, Oh, you know, you had these obstacles too. Samara had these obstacles too. Yeah. And, so, and so did I. Particularly, well, I, I, let me, let me just add on, particularly in this day and age where people see only all the people see on Instagram or Facebook is exactly. people's success. It's like, right. wow, exactly. And so it warps your mind on, Oh, everybody around me is just, you know, balling out or everybody around me is doing what they love. And, but when people are going through struggles, oftentimes just nobody posts you, that, then that's not on Instagram. No, Look I, at me. I'm struggling. It's not glamorous. It's <laughs> exactly. Not and so, you know, I, I just wanted to add that context to, to the question. 
I mean, you know, for me, it's like some of the failures that I've had or some of the not so successful moments. Failures is such a harsh word. I don't want to. Well, that's, that's not temporary, but it's temporary anyway. That's how I look at it. But um, you know what? Instead of failures, let's call them this. And this is something I learned from my daughter's chess teacher. Okay. Uh, let's call them setbacks. Okay. Because, and this is a quote that has stayed with me um, from that program that my daughter was in. Setbacks are setups for a comeback. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I look at it as a failure as like, oh, that's it. You, you messed up. You're done. Check you know, right. but yeah. yeah. <laughs> But a setback, which is what we've all experienced in yes. life, often helps us, especially with maturity, and you can really take the time to figure out why you landed in that setback. You can use that as a way to navigate through life and get back to your comeback. So no more failures. Okay. <laughs> okay. So give me your setbacks. Tell me, tell me. Oh, setbacks. Tell me yes. I can identify with setbacks. Okay. Um, you know, some of the things that, you know, I, I, you know, everything is trial and error for me. So my first year when we planned events, when we you know produced our, our, our trip to uh, Louisville for the first time, everything was big and grandiose in my head. And remember, I'm, I have an event planner background. So I think very lavishly and very big and, you know, on a very high, a high scale. Um, but the reality is you don't have much of a budget. Um, you're limited in your resources and people still don't know about you. So there were several moments when I produced events and just begged people to show up just so I could have somebody in the room. Um, I underpriced myself and didn't make any money, ended up going in the red. Um, there were moments, even, even with my first trip to Louisville, um, we had this grandiose idea, oh, we're going to throw this trip to Louisville and we're going to invite, you know, 40 people are going to join us. They're going to pay. They're going to have this amazing experience and only 10 people show up. And I go into the whole thousands of dollars, you know, um, that is a total setback. And if you're not mentally prepared for that, it can be your failure. It can shut you down and it can make you want to quit. Um, but there's always something about doing that post analysis and really looking at, okay, how can we have done this better? How could we have had, you know, how could we have done the vision that I wanted to do within the budget that we had set, Uh, even building out, you know, it it took me a long time to realize this, to be honest, like, especially that first year and a half of doing events across the country is I didn't even have my budget right as far as how much profit I was making off of my events because I wasn't even including my travel, yeah. you know? So I'm like, okay, like this event was successful. We made money, but why am I still broke? Like, why don't we have any money? <laughs> and because, oh, like I'm flying from LA. It's a $500 flight. And I stayed in Chicago for three days and we ate at our steakhouse. And yeah, I was just like, you know, throwing events for free trips, like, you know, <laughs> in the wash. So, um, you know, that's why we weren't financially successful. So it was really taking a hard look and saying like, okay, th- we're not going to grow. Like I can't make this my career. I can't make this my life. If, if I can't get my budget together, if I don't understand how I'm spending money, how, and, and building formulas to make sure that even if I am spending the money, that there's still a revenue on it, on the back end. And so like, again, going right. back to the trip, the first trip that we did, um, it was a bad, a, it was a bad partnership that I did with a travel company. It wasn't, it, I won't say that it was bad. 
um, I will say that it wasn't, it wasn't a fair partnership that I did with that travel company. So I lost revenue just off top with the, with the partnership agreement. Right. But that sounds then, pretty bad. Yeah. I Losing mean, money's not fun. <laughs> well, you know what we ended up doing is we went back to that same company and we said, look, I want to change the terms of agreements. And I want to be able to use you for this, but not for that. Right. And I took on more of the lion's share of that, but that also meant I get to keep 90% of my profits instead. Oh, that's of good. So you worked out a better deal with them. Yeah. So I worked out a better deal. And um, instead of having 10 people from the first year, we had 35. And it was, I, I made more money off of that event than I did in all of 2017. So that's, that's, that, that's interesting. You know, Tim, Tim Ferriss talks about the way to build a large audience is by going small. So it sounds like you're trying to be really specific about who's in your audience. How do you use Facebook? Like, have you found, it looks like you, you Facebook was your initial kind of yeah. platform. How do you use that in order to help with your marketing? And what advice do you give to entrepreneurs when it comes to using Facebook or social media and in, 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 in their, in their expansion or their, or their uh, tactics? I will say we build a black bourbon society solely off of social media and um, we've just found a way to monetize everything off of social media. Um, the rules of Facebook constantly change, yeah, which makes do. it challenging. Um, I mean, I was just, and we've done so well at that, like Facebook invited me and, and other group admins who have done the same thing across the world. They all invite us, invited us to their um, headquarters earlier this year and taught us all this great stuff. And then like two months later, they changed the algorithm. So none of it, it was all. Oh, wow. No, but um, so it constantly changes, but that's, that's technology. But it used but, to be, like you said, it used to be, because people ask me about this all the time. Well, don't you have to just post all the time? No, yeah. that, 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 that worked yeah. like 15 years ago. Like posting, yeah. <laughs> like posting, yeah. the posting all the time does not get you more recognition. Doesn't work. Doesn't, they changed it. You've got to use colorful language that doesn't trigger their algorithms. And they're constantly sharpening and, you know, changing that the triggers with their algorithms. So it is extremely, is extremely frustrating. So you got to use like, well, I didn't know this. So wait, wait, educate us a little bit here. <laughs> Wait, so like what type of language triggers that it triggers what they, and then they don't share your stuff. Is this what you're saying to me? Yeah. Well, it pushes it down the timeline. It doesn't pop up immediately. Like if you say the word event, if you type up the word event, then it, it, I mean, I can make some vulnerable post on my personal page about father's day and get 400 likes. The moment I say, Hey guys, I'm going to Louisville to do an event. I get two likes. Oh, and well, I, that's what happened. I, I'm wondering, this is, you're helping me. I'm like, why am I getting, okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So there's a whole, there's a whole thing. So it's like, they're going more for personal stories and they, and Facebook wants you to pour your soul out on, on their. Yeah. So they side. get more information about you and you got to pay for it. If you want to, if you want to be a business. Yeah. That's what, and yeah. you're absolutely right. It's more of a pay to play. <laughs> you're exactly right. So you've got to be very creative. Um, but with that being said, we were still able to build our group and we've, you know, we still just in the past six weeks have gained like over 2000 members in Black Bourbon Society. And that's really because it's word of mouth. It's, you know, I started off with my family. I started off with my, with my, um, my friends that I went to college with and, you know, they forwarded and shared it and invited their friends and tagged their friends and more, you know, more people join our group. And then they say, Oh, I know people who like bourbon as well or need to know about this group. And they invite them to the group. So 
for the most part, all of our growth is organic. And it's all just from one person really believing in the mission and inviting 200 of their friends. And then they all like the mission and then they invite to invite 200 of their friends. So. Yeah. You know, it, it, this is, um, being organic and building, building, um, you know, businesses, actually African-Americans have been doing this for a long time. I like to think we've gotten away from a lot of our roots and I want to kind of change, change direction a little bit. You know, there's really an untold, untold story of black entrepreneurs in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I, when I looked up some uh, things about your business and about things that were happening at the same time, I saw the, the, the information about Nathan Green and I'd had no idea that an African-American has so much involvement in uh, Jack Daniels that he actually gave him the recipe and that he was an entrepreneur. This is, we're talking about post right after slavery, mm -hmm. uh, but you never, you never hear about this story and talk about that. I know there's an African-American woman that is starting a business. The guy's name was uh, Nathan Green and he was known mm -hmm. as Uncle Nearest, right? And that's this new product mm -hmm. coming out. So I'm going to try this bourbon because I like bourbon. Um, but talk a little bit about the story that, you know, you, you come from four generations of entrepreneurs. When people think of African-Americans, unfortunately, I think the stereotype is a lot of us aren't, aren't, actually, uh, aren't actually entrepreneurs, but, you know, if you look at the story of um, Uncle Nearest, and you, you, can, you can tell it or I can't, um, yeah. but, you know, that is one example of many uh, of, of the roots of entrepreneurship within the African-American community. Just talk a little bit about that, and, you know, just so the listeners can understand the history. You know, I think all of our ancestors were entrepreneurs in some sort of way. You know, even if your grandmother or your great grandmother was washing clothes for Miss Ann down the street, it was her, it was her laundry business, yep. you know? And I think because we that had to be, we, we lost, we lost touch of that. We yeah. lost touch of that because yeah. we didn't, after integration, folks were like, well, you know, white folks, ice is cooler. I want to go there. I haven't been able to go there. Let right. me go to that store. And then they left all of the stuff that you had in your own community to build your own wealth. We had to right. be entrepreneurs to survive. And I would argue that that is the case right now. And there's a new opportunity within, uh, you know, social media and the Internet. Uh, I know, James, you had you had a, a little antidote you wanted to talk about. Oh, <laughs> Uncle Nearest. Well, I actually learned about the story recently um, and within the past, let's say, a little over nine months. Uh, my brother, which, you know, I, now I've passed his or my or, excuse me, your information to him, um, mm -hmm. because once I saw we were doing this. But my brother is a big fan of Uncle Nearest. And he, he claims that um, his youngest daughter um, you know, his consumption of Uncle Nearest or him and, him and his wife, you know, their first time having <laughs> Uncle Nearest led to a bundle of joy nine months later. <laughs> there you go. So, there you go. And he told oh, me Uncle Nearest is creating babies out here. He told me I could, he told me I could say that. And so, uh, yeah, because I was like, oh, well, I'll just say family member. So he's like, no, it's okay. This is that's something we're proud of. And so yeah. I was like, all right, well, yeah. So Uncle Nearest is still getting it done. <laughs> So here's the big thing with Uncle Nearest. Uncle Nearest started around the same time we, um, Uncle Nearest, the idea of the brand for Uncle Nearest started around the same time that Black Urban Society was being created. Um, and it was actually created by a woman named Fawn Weaver, who um, is from Los Angeles. Okay. And, um, you guys are doing it big in LA. Black <laughs> LA is a thing. All right. You know, I, um, Fawn and I and her husband, uh, Keith, we all grew up within like a five mile radius of each other and never knew about each other until after all of this, like BBS was created and Uncle Nearest right. was, and just, you know, and again, BBS was created in May. I think she launched Uncle Nearest like two months after that in the same year. 
So just stars were starting to align. This story in the universe just needed to push out and be and be, and be told. <clears throat> but um, you know, Uncle Neris was the original master distiller for Jack Daniels. He was a slave. Um, he was Dan Call's slave, not Jack Daniels' slave. But Dan Call was a preacher in Lynchburg, Tennessee. And uh, Jack Daniels was a young boy who went to Dan Call and said, hey, like, I see your slaves over there making something. Like, I want to know what they're making. And so he kept bugging Dan Call about um, learning how to make this whiskey or whatever the slaves were making over there. And so Dan Call agreed, yes, I'll let, you know, I'll give you my best, Uncle Nearest, and he will teach you how to make whiskey. And wow. um, and so he was rented by Jack Daniels to because um, he was already owned. So this is interesting, right? He was already owned, but so he was rented um, by Jack Daniels to, to start making whiskey. After emancipation happened, he was, of course, free, legally free, but continued to work with Jack Daniels in making whiskey. They had actually bonded and created a real friendship. And there are still nearest green descendants that work at the Jack. Jack oh, wow. wow. I didn't know, I didn't know that. He actually became, he made a lot of money. He eventually yeah, made a lot of money. Yeah, he, he was successful. They looked out for his family, the Motlows. That's, a good, that's a good story that usually, yeah. doesn't usually end out that way. Usually it's the money's yeah. taken from you. Goodbye. You don't get anything. So that's right. good to hear. And so, you know, we hear so many stories about slavery and emancipation that we auto automatically think they're all horrid and wrong. But Fawn has done a great amount of research and she's taken a great amount of time to make sure to tell the story um, accurately. Mm -hmm. And they did. They ended up becoming friends. Their families ended up becoming friends and they do support each other. Fawn, of course, takes it to a whole nother level and creates this brand in his honor. And she's even gone to the point where she's researched all of his descendants, even the ones that didn't realize they were descendants of Nearest Green um, or the importance of being a descendant of Nearest Green. And she's all, but she's kind of put the family back together from across the country. Mm. Um, and then, of course, uh, a portion of the proceeds from um, the bottle sales have, um, have gone to the Uncle Nearest, I think it's, a, no, it's the Nearest Green Foundation which supports his descendants in going to college and getting. Oh, wow. Nice. Uh, that's pretty nice. awesome. That's great. So, you know, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, black business has, has declined. It's kind of seen an uptick recently yeah. with, with, with a lot of ventures with, uh, you know, ventures like yourself, but mm -hmm. how do you think we get our communities back to embracing entrepreneurship and, you know, how do we get back into that mindset collectively? Oh, and particularly supporting each other, too, because, you know, it's, you know, that we don't have to prove that, that, that our that our ice is just as cold as everybody else. <laughs> so. I, think that's, I think it's more of a support thing. I think we all have this idea of wanting to be an entrepreneur. But of course, there's fear. It's kind of been ingrained in us from our parents um, in the last generation, um, you know. Our, the last generation, I'm, and I'm going to speak specifically to like my family, which might be like yours, but like my mom got her degree, worked sure. the same yep. job for 40 years, you know, same job, got her retirement, got her pension, had, had her benefits, and she played the rules by the book. And I think that generation um, wanted us to live that life too. Um, but we're realizing that in 2019, it's that just, life don't exist, by the way. Huh? That life doesn't even exist anymore. It doesn't exist. It doesn't. 
So we, first of all, there's no such thing as a pension. No, you know? or loyalty from a company, one company. Or loyalty from a company. And honestly, if you work for a company more than two to three years, you're looked at as not being ambitious enough in, in your yep. career trajectory. So that, that formula that works so well for our parents just doesn't exist. However, some of us are willing to break that mold and some are just kind of too conservative Risk averse, you know, it's, it's a risk yeah. aversion. Yeah, yeah. Risk that you see. And not willing to get out there. But you're not yeah. taught. You're, you're taught a lot of wrong things. You're taught if you go to school, oh, yeah. you work hard, you do that, and you you're finish college, great. then everything is great for you. That's not you true. Get a house, yeah, right. get a house. Go ahead, get a mortgage, get in debt. Right. Find a college yep. marry your college sweetheart. Have yes. Oh, that's a bad. Never mind. I shouldn't say that. And that's all. <laughs> That's a societal thing that you see, though. It is. But it's a societal thing, but it affects African-Americans, I think, a little more severely, um, you know, oftentimes because of of where they're coming from, you know. And so you see like the entrepreneurship. Yeah, the generation prior to to ours was definitely more risk averse. But the opportunities they had were more long term, you know, and then also to their credit. They were really the first generation that got to plug in at the Correct. very beginning of their careers to that system that yeah. created a huge middle class in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Right. Um, but times have changed. Times yeah. have changed times a lot. Changed. And so, you know, just like we've had to do all this time throughout the decades and throughout the generations, we've had to adjust. And so I really feel like even if you are working your corporate job or even if you are too risk adverse to just jump in full throttle, start a side hustle on your side on the on the um, you know, and, and it really boils down to everybody needs to know how to hunt and not wait for the first and the 15th to roll around for you to be fed. You need to be able to know how if your check doesn't hit. And this happened in D.C. with the whole government shutdown earlier this year. If, you, if your check stops tomorrow, you still need to be able to feed your family. Yeah. And it takes some, you know, reading this great book from Tim Ferriss, it takes some it takes some, you have to allow yourself to not accept the reality that others want to place on you. Like you have to do all these things. You actually have more, more free time than you can imagine if you're able to just to not accept the reality that others try to force upon you. Mm-hmm. And if you're not willing to take action, you know, the greatest threat is honestly inaction because most people in their lives, by the time they get to be 80, no one says, my God, I, most people don't say, I wish I didn't do that. Most of the time it's said, I wish I would have had the courage to do X, Y, Z. I right. tell folks, I don't want to be sitting on my rocket chair saying that I wish I would have, I wish I would have, I wish I would have. I want to say, this is what I did. And I'm glad I took the risk to do to actually do it. But going back to something that you asked me from the very beginning, and that is, you know, with and with women in particular, but also with men, it's like, you know, making it's it's how do you know you're ready to get out there and do this and just and just go for your passion. And I feel like we find excuses for ourselves to to do that. Right. So we mm-hmm. say, oh, I'm not ready. I'm not prepared or oh, I'm not an expert at that. So what do we do? It's and I'm sorry. I'm probably going to go down a rabbit hole with this. No, one. go go ahead, go down a rabbit hole. We like <laughs> no, rabbit holes. This is a podcast. Like, you can go down oh, rabbit holes. I don't know how to do that, so I'm going to go get a degree, and mm-hmm. that puts you we'll take in, on a bunch of debt. Yeah, puts you in debt, and it pushes you back another two years from actually fulfilling your dreams. And I think we need to get out of that habit. Is like you know, unless you're becoming a doctor and you're about to do surgery on somebody, like, yes, you need to know what you're doing. But for you to start a side hustle business, no, you don't have to have an MBA. No. Like, Most people don't. 
Right. And the, and the stuff they're teaching you in the NBA isn't really teaching you how to do that anyway. Exactly. No, no, no. If you know how to design shirts and you want to start a t-shirt company, you don't have to take a class for that. You just need to do Facebook, you know, like work your network, hustle yourself, like let it be known what you're doing. But I think we often get in, and that might be something that I would also blame on the generation before us about being overprepared, but you know, you don't have to have it all. Just get started. Don't be afraid to just move and get started. So what, 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 what type of habits do you suggest to get people there? So, you know, an advice that, that, that I've heard from some entrepreneurs, they say, look, just do something every day that makes you uncomfortable to get used to having uncomfortable conversations, to making yourself uncomfortable. That's one piece of advice I've heard over and over again, to kind of get you into the habit of getting into situations that you're afraid of. Look, it is natural to, uh, to be afraid, to be uncomfortable, but it's the people that are willing to be uncomfortable that live the most comfortably. So right. what advice or habits do you might, might you suggest for people that are just still find themselves in that, in that fear state of saying, you know, I'm not sure I, maybe that's not me or that's just for people that, you know, that, that, that's just for the few that can, that, that, that can take that leap. I think you have to ask yourself, well, it's something, one of the articles I think you referred to earlier, I said, get unstuck. And I think you have to challenge yourself. We all have that voice in our head that says, oh, I can't do that. Oh, I'm not ready for that. And I challenge you to ask that same voice, why? Prove me. Why? And I think we never challenge that inner critic on why. We just believe it. And forget it. I'm not ready. And we just walk away. We accept it. But I, I challenge people to challenge their inner critic. Yeah, uh, my my mother. I'm, I'm going to cuss a little bit. She used to call it the itty bitty shitty committee. Is the, is the voice right. you hear? Yeah. Right. <laughs> the voice you heard in your, in your head right. that always tells you negative thoughts. That gets you not just at the beginning though. Sometimes that gets you like when you have setbacks. That voice will yep, come back. Absolutely, I've and heard so, the voice before. I had to fight. <laughs> follow through is is you know yeah. it's, it's the initial start and then the follow through and that's I think a big part of it is selecting something or, or deciding to do something that you enjoy you know, right. independently of the money you're trying to make on it or whatever, because you, you have to, to want to be there and want to do it. And when things don't go right to not just run for the Hills or, you know, that little voice saying, I told you, so this was never right. going to work and yada, yada, yada. You got to be able to, to push that out. And so I named that voice. That voice's name is Leroy. <laughs> but Leroy, why? Like, and you know, as an entrepreneur, you work in a, you work in a silo with me and my computer. So yes, there are moments when I talk to myself, because I don't have a board. I am the board. So it's me and Leroy and the other, you know, positive voices in my head. So do they have names too? Huh? Do they have, do the positive names? They don't have names. Sacred to me. So okay. Uh, Okay. You can't tell. It's just a few of us and a few thousand people. You can tell us. I can throw Leroy (laughs) under the bus. But, But, um, but yeah, like it's, it's always like, okay, yeah, Leroy, we hear you, but we're going to do this anyway. You know, and and you get into the habit. And I remember um, it's when I get that feeling when when Leroy is the loudest or, you know, when fear is the loudest in my head, I just keep saying, like, on the other side of this hurdle is success. Like, it's, yeah. it's, it's just, you're right there at the cusp. And the, and the closer you get to actually achieving, the louder that voice gets. And so it's like, oh, yeah, okay, we're just going to push past because we're right there. You're, you're expanding your horizon. And as soon as you get past it, I mean, it's, it's glory waiting on the other side, you know? 
No, and, and you're so right. And when I tell folks, when you look at where you're at, and people always like to measure what could go wrong, what could go wrong, what could go wrong. Well, you, could, you, should, you should also measure not taking action. Like, what if you're going to be in this same awful job for the next 10 years of your life? <laughs> like, yeah. or what if you're not going to change any circumstances? You're not going to be able to move forward. I mean, look at measure not only what could happen, what could go wrong. Measure what could happen if you do not take that you risk. Don't do anything. James. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, that's, that's 100%. People don't evaluate that risk properly oftentimes. Only evaluate and oftentimes exaggerate the risk of doing something different. Usually it's um, really exaggerated. Yeah. Now, I, I, I have another question for you, though. Um, now, we know about the internal voice, you know, the positive, the negative. What do you find as far as con- it, it being a contributory aspect of your success as far as surrounding yourselves, not with too many people, like actual people that are negative mm-hmm. versus trying to be around people that are positive or that are also trying to, to push the limits and do stuff and that challenge you? That has been my biggest struggle. Honestly, my biggest struggle has been um, internal and it has also been with um, reading people who were not supportive of my of my path and my journey. Um, And then also going back to internally, me not realizing that I was worthy of having a better tribe. Yeah. And uh, And so, you know, like I talked to my career coach or my, my, my career coach slash spiritual coach. And she's like, well, how can I help you with my business? And I always say, my business is great. Like if I got rid of all the other nonsense in my life, I could really be able to thrive in my business. But, you know. So so what stops that? We have, you have to, I'm trying to find the polite words to say this, but. Doesn't have to be polite. It's just um, You know, you just, you can't hold on, you can't carry dead weight. You can't. Oh, I understand that. And so you've got to, you've got to be willing to shed the dead weight. And that could come in the form of your friends. It could come in the form of your family. Mm -hmm. But if they are not for you, if they don't believe in your vision, if they don't trust your vision and they are in the way of your success, You've got to politely say, I love you, but no, I'm still climbing. I'm still going on this journey. And I don't know. You you just that's very hard, though, right? That's that's probably one of the hardest things there is to do. I can speak from personal experience as well, though, that toxic people and often the most effective people at being toxic and, and bringing your life down to those who are closest to you. Yeah. But they can bring you down. So the people you hang around, you know, there's been studies that's been shown that uh, you might think in a positive way, you have your mind made up this way, but the people you hang around, if they have a different, or they have a different mindset, they have a backwards mm-hmm. mindset, they have a negative mindset, whatever it, whatever it is, they actually re, uh, re, rewire your brain. Your brain changes to the people around you. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you really do. I mean, you do have to do that for your own sanity. Because toxic people and toxic toxic situations can really derail your entire career. That's that's usually what happens to people. And I can, I've had my own personal experiences there. And mm-hmm. my advice there is to be as ruthless as possible. There. I mean, it sounds bad, but <laughs> but it's the best advice you can do. Because and when you do this, and when you change your, when you change the dynamics of what's expected, the people that have been used to dominating you that way or having that influence they react even crazier because they're like, because yeah, they, 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 they feel like what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. But you know what? Not your problem. 
<laughs> well, so, I'll say this. Well, no, please go ahead. The biggest example of that is, and this is very honest, is I mean, a year into my business, I ended up getting a divorce and moving from Oakland to Los Angeles with my two children, um, only to live, move into my parents' house. But then, so I got out of one toxic situation where I realized that someone was against me, only to come into my childhood home and realize that there, the dysfunction and the toxicity in my house was also preventing my success. Mm-hmm. And um, it really, again, the amount of energy that is spent just in weeding off that energy from you takes away from you being able to focus on your business and help your business grow. So you're absolutely right. A toxic environment, toxic friends, they just drain your energy. They take your energy away from what it's really supposed to be used Mm -hmm. for. Um, And I have, I've had to, I've let go of my ex-husband. I've had to let go of my father. Um, Who I actually, again, I said, I'm a fourth generation entrepreneur. So grew up, you know, admiring my father's work ethic and really admiring how he, you know, his story of how he came from rural Alabama, hitchhiked his way to LA and worked his way up and became a millionaire. You know what I mean? Like I admire him, yet his toxicity is something that I can't even have around me. I have had to part ways with him. Um, and and you do have to be prepared for that. And, and being an entrepreneur, it is isolating. And it's isolating because the higher you climb, the less likely you will have to, people with you by your side. Mm. Not yeah, everybody wow. is meant for the journey. Not yeah, everybody yep. is prepared. And you have to be willing to continue to climb up that ladder by yourself. Well, yeah, if you pull people out of their comfort zone, what their expectation is or whatever box they have you in, then people can react to that way. I I always say, you know, the first thing you have to do is identify, be able to identify the people around you that are the ones that are are helping you, the ones that are hurting you. And I, you, you really, you you really hit it on the head uh, when you said the draining of the energy, because that's really how you can tell, you know, when, when you're around people and you feel like you can accomplish less, like it's, you're drained, that's how, you know, and then when you're, you're around other people and it's like, man, I feel like I can accomplish anything. And those are the people you should hang out with more, you know, because that energy drain is real. And Mm -hmm. what, you know, what Rob was saying, I didn't even know about that rewiring your brain. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) That's, 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 that's something else. I, I, I encourage any entrepreneur, anybody actually in our age group needs to go through therapy, but I really believe like if you're going to go on this journey of entrepreneurship, you've got to have a sound mind. You've got to be at peace. You have to have a spiritual practice of some sort. I don't care what it is. It's, it's your choice, but you have to be rooted and grounded into some sort of faith. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't have agree. that, you will get, you will be succumbed by your failures. You will, yeah. you will quit. And most of all, you also repeat some of the same patterns. Yeah. You'll invite the same type of toxic people mm-hmm. into your life. To you will sabotage your own life unknowingly. I mean, it's more yeah. than entrepreneurship. It's this the truth of understanding yourself. That's what that, yeah. that's the great thing about therapy. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And again, like those patterns become very clear and then you're able to see them in your business. So like, okay, fine. I realized the mistakes I made in planning events in 2017. I don't have to repeat that pattern. I can, (laughs) you know, I can create new patterns, new, new, new measures. And, and that's how you do gain success. 
So uh, as we kind of come towards the end, I, I want to just get a, a sense of where you want your legacy to head. And some, so a couple of questions. Uh, you have a committee of three, living or dead. Who was on that committee to advise you on whatever you want, your business, life? Who was on that committee and why? Oh Who's going to shout down Leroy? <laughs> <laughs> um, Oprah. Okay. You know, people have often referred to me as the Oprah of the bourbon business. And I don't know why, because my bank account looks nothing like hers. <laughs> it uh, took her a while to get there. Yeah, but even still, Oprah is on that list because even though Oprah has reached billionaire status, she still gets up and goes to work every single day. Mm -hmm. She's passionate about what she does. And I need, I need a squad that is always going to recognize the passion and it's going to continue. Even when I achieve whatever the goal is, I'm still going to be passionate. So what question would you ask Oprah? If she was right in front of us, what was your, what, what's your one? You got one question to ask her. What is it? Um... Can I have a hug? Can I? You know, it's if I met Oprah today, I would just be dumbfounded. You know, it's just I would be I would be left speechless. Um, but I would really ask her, um, what is her? What makes her get up every morning and go back to work? You know, okay. what what is what is her new passion? You know, because her passions have switched. We've seen her journeys sure. evolve, um, but our, I think her biggest her biggest mission is like is out of this world like she's got she's so inspiring on so many different levels i agree yeah. right, two um, more okay, people. So, one, so number two michelle obama because uh, that'd be a good one <laughs> um and we're gonna have her on the podcast i'm just gonna say it out there sometime <laughs> don't know when it's gonna happen we'll put it out in the universe all right Go ahead. Um, so yeah, so Michelle Obama, she, because she's just such a badass, she has so much grace, so much class, and she's whiz bang smart. Um, and she um, embodies this divine feminine power um, that oftentimes as a, a female entrepreneur, you can get so caught up in the hunt that you, um, that you forget to be feminine. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm, I'm watching her now as she does her book tour across the country and how she can just walk into a room and just be amazing and turn, like everybody in the room just turns heads and just like, oh my God, like Princess Michelle Obama, you know? Um, and, but possessing that divine feminine energy um, is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third person, wow. Those are the two living. Okay, if I go for somebody dead, um, I don't know. Probably, um, I don't know. I want to say like Yogi Bhajan or something, like one of the yogis, mm. like famous uh, yogis who um, know what the universe is and knows how to use the universe to um, to help fulfill goals and dreams and, and just really having a larger perspective on what life really is about, you know? Okay. So one other question. So you have a billboard, Google ad, whatever you want to call it, that summarizes your beliefs or, 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 or a saying that's about you. What would it say and why? Oh God, a billboard that says something about me. Um, a saying, a motto, whatever. It summarizes your essence of who you are, 
You want yeah. this to be in your in your eulogy to say this is what I want everybody to know. This is this is this is it. What would it be? Um, she made it to the other side of the mountain. Okay. Very nice. Very nice. All right. And that, it's it, this is this journey has not been easy. It, um, and like I said, it's it's interesting being a pioneer. But it's also um, been a learning process of, of discovering who I truly am. And, nice. um, and so, yeah, I made it to the other side. All right. You made it to the other side. Samara Rivers, uh, Bonded in Bourbon is the podcast, correct? Yeah. Yeah, Bonded in Bourbon yeah. and uh-huh. the Black Bourbon Society. Uh, before we conclude, Bonded in Bourbon, like, how did that come about? <laughs> um, that, that, was there a similar story to Uncle Nearest? No. So, um, <laughs> no. Um, so, uh, bottled in bond is a term used in the whiskey industry. It's, mm-hmm. it describes, you know, bourbon that has been, um, aged at least four years. It's a hundred proof and it's government sanctioned all of that. So my partner and I, um, took a twist off of that phrase bottled in bond and created bonded in bourbon okay. uh, it really is a nod to, so the show is a uh, is a whiskey review show from a his and hers perspective. Okay. Um, so right. we're kind of Cisco and Ebert, but like way cooler. Um, and and we review whiskeys every week, but it really is a nod to our relationship because we did form a bond literally over whiskey. Yeah. See, so it's nice. kind of similar. Nice. No babies, but at least you did form a bond. Yeah. That's no, we good. did, and, and and we from that we fell in love, and he's. My partner for life. He's my business partner. He's my That's awesome. He's my everything. Yeah. That's awesome. So, you know, when you, you're coming to Cincinnati and, and I was serious about maybe seeing if we can do a, a something to help pop, pop up event. I like bourbon. You seem like a cool person. We can do something in person, drink some bourbon and talk. Seem like I'd be fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so I'll be there for bourbon in the park. I just got invited earlier this week. To oh, speak. look, see. And that's um, God's exquisite timing. That's how I look at it. Yeah, that's how the universe works. So yeah. we'll make it work. Um, I'll be there. I think it's September uh, 14th, September 14th. Okay. I think I'm around. And, yeah. So um, we'll plan something. Yeah, we can do something. That'll be good. We've got a following in Cincinnati and around, you know, Ohio. So I'm built up and they'll join us. All right. And, and we'll also make sure to post it all on, on both our YouTube. Yeah all on the podcast and when we advertise it we'll make sure people know about Black Bourbon Society uh, Bonding and Bourbon and Bonding and Bourbon Bond, that's a great name by the way yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. want to bond on, on bourbon or bond and bourbon too you know, it's, it's, it's I, awesome. I haven't trademarked that let me get on that today hey, yeah. leave me a call give me You're a right. call yeah. well, I like that that's yeah, good. De- yeah definitely trademarked it that's a very good that's a, that's a great name Mm-hmm. And uh, look forward to working with you. Thank you for all you do. We'll make sure that people know about Bonded and Bourbon and the Black Bourbon Society. And look forward to doing something in September, Cincinnati. Samara Rivers, thank you for coming on. Yeah. Good night, guys. Stay woke if you want to stay free. I'm Rob Richardson. And I'm James Keys. And we'll see you next time. 